If you have your scriptures with you, open them to um, Ephesians chapter 6. We're coming to the end of this wonderful letter, the um, grammar of the gospel, Ephesians chapter 6. If you don't have your scriptures with you, you can look in your bulletin. Uh, there's an insert in there with the scriptures printed there. Now hear God's word. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people-pleasing, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with them. This is the word of the Lord. Paul's going to talk about slavery. You know, we've been going through this section in Ephesians where he's addressing different groups of people, primarily the three major uh, divisions of our relationships with human beings. One is on our marriages, those of you that are married. The other is in the home with our children. And the third one is with our employers or employees in the workplace. And Paul is talking about slavery. Now let me clear up a few things about slavery. He uses the word uh, slave. It means uh, slave. It means a bond servant. It's not an employee. So he's addressing people who are not merely employees. And while it's very hard for us to get our head around that today because slavery, of course, is illegal in every country in the earth. But in sl- slavery in Paul's day was very, very much a part of their culture. It was not even thought about as being something that needed to be abolished or anything like that. Even though at this time in Roman history, slavery was on the decrease. There were less and less slaves. And even some of the uh, Roman leaders and philosophers, uh, even Seneca, and others uh, were calling for slavery not to be abolished, but to be reduced. And so, uh, just by way of uh, clarification and information that you might find interesting, during Paul's day in the Roman Empire, their estimate, uh, scholars estimate anywhere from 60 million slaves uh, on up. In many places, many towns and cities, slaves outnumbered Uh, the citizens. Slaves in those days came from every walk of life, from peasants all the way to well-educated. They were an integral part of the societal fabric in the ancient world, not just in Rome, but throughout uh, the world. It's said that when Julius Caesar was on his conquests of Europe and uh, even the British Isles, that he shipped back to Rome over one million slaves. These were people they captured either in battle or when they raided a village, they would take prisoners, and these prisoners were shipped back to Rome, a million slaves. In Acts 23, the governor, Felix, many of you remember the story, Paul is brought before this governor who was the one that 
uh, presumably took uh, Pontius Pilate's place. Maybe there had been another one in between. But Felix was a slave who had, through his own uh, ingenuity and, uh, and prowess, had managed to buy himself out of slavery and then go up through the ranks of political, uh, uh, the political life in Rome uh, to become a governor. Slavery today is illegal in every country in the world. And yet, as many of you know, slavery still persists. Now, it's estimated today that worldwide, and we live in a world, what, 7 billion people? There's around 20 to 30 million people that are in slavery today. Those are just estimates. So it's not quite as pervasive as it was in Paul's day by ratio. But... There's different kinds of slavery, and you need to understand what they are in order to make the connections, and then I'll, I'll bring it to our modern day in a moment. First of all, there's what is called chattel slavery. Chattel rhymes with cattle, so you can think about it. This is the kind of slavery where one person owns another person, and they own them completely, their property. Uh, this is what most of us have in mind when we think of slavery. We think of the slaves uh, in the pre-Civil War days in the United States. And that was, in most places, chattel slavery. These slaves were owned by property owners uh, and uh, plantation owners, and they were uh, just like their cattle or their sheep or anything else. They could be bought, they could be sold, they could be traded, and they could be inherited. And so if a person owned a slave and he died, he or she died, the slaves were passed on to their, uh, their progeny. So you, you didn't get out of jail free if your, if your owner died. You just got passed on to somebody else. They could be transferred uh, according to a debt. Uh, those of you that have seen uh, some of the movies, uh, Gone with the Wind, things like that, you, you saw a, just a glimpse of what chattel slavery was like in the United States. The second kind of slavery, and this is one that Paul is talking about, and it's also one that is very common today, and this is bonded or indentured uh, servitude. This is where a person gets into such trouble that they have to sell themselves into service. And this is what you see most of the time in the Old Testament. Uh, it was bonded or indentured servitude. And a person could actually sell themselves to someone or they could sell their children or even their wives into slavery to serve in order to repay a debt. This is the most common kind of slavery today as well. And we'll talk about that uh, in a moment. But bonded and indentured servitude is Mostly what Paul is talking about. And in the Roman world, most bonded or indentured servants had a length of time that they were obliged to serve and then they could buy themselves out of slavery. So it wasn't like chattel slavery where they were slaves forever and their children, if they had any children, were slaves and slaves and slaves and slaves. This is different. Another kind, which you see in the, in the news a lot today, is sex trafficking slavery. This is women, children, and even men, often forced into the commercial sex industry. Uh, and you read about that uh, a lot on the news uh, today. It's very preve pre prevalent around the world. There's a fourth kind here that's called domestic or forced labor. And I think we're particularly... Uh, 
maybe a little bit more familiar with this kind of bondage and servitude here along the border. And this is where people are hired, but they're hired and they have to work under the threat of violence or exposure, legal exposure. In other words, a person might come to the United States illegally, and whatever you think about illegal immigration and you know all of that, I'm not going to comment. But someone would come to the United States or into a country illegally and find work. And the employer would hire them, but often at substandard wages. And if they didn't do everything that they were commanded to do, and even sometimes be exploited in, in, in terrible ways, there was the threat of either violence or exposure to the law. If you don't do what I'm telling you, I'm going to call la migra. And you're going back. And so there was this threat. That's domestic and forced labor. And then finally it was child enslavement. And that child enslavement has to do with any of the others. Now what does this tell us? What does slavery, whether it's chattel slavery or, or just oppression of someone who works for you, and everything in between, sex trafficking, child enslavement, what does that tell us? about what Paul is addressing here. Well, what it tells us is that in the heart of human beings, listen folks, in the heart of human beings, there's a tendency to dehumanize and objectify people around us. We rank people. This one is worth this. This one is worth this. And we often rank them and pigeonhole them into categories based on their education, what color their skin is, maybe what their citizenship is, uh, how much money they have, how, much, how good looking they are. Could be any number of things. But we tend to rank and categorize people this way. And in so doing, we do it subconsciously and sometimes we do it consciously. And when we do that, we are dehumanizing one another. We're objectifying each other. And Paul is addressing this in, in perhaps the most robust part of our lives. You know, I spent years in my business uh, that I had. I, I've told you many times I was a workaholic. I worked like a crazy man. I sacrificed my family uh, and my children on the altar of what I thought was success. And I spent vast amounts of time with my employees at my work and my job, much more than I spent with my children, much more than I spent with my wife. And that's true of almost everyone who has a job or works. We spend enormous amounts of time in the workplace. So we need to understand this tendency of ours to objectify and dehumanize people. And Paul is addressing that He's talked about wives and husbands. He's talked about children and parents. And now he's talking about the workplace. And it's so crucial because most of you and myself, most of us spent the largest portion of our day, eight hours of our day at minimum, with employers or employees. Yes? That's where we spend the bulk of our time. And if you see people as an object, if you objectify, and we all do it, but if you're, if you're either consciously or unconsciously doing it, and you need to get your head around how not to do it, Paul is giving us a grammar, 
of the Gospel of how we are to look at one another through the eyes of our Savior Jesus Christ who, Paul says, shows no partiality. In other words, when he looks at the lowly peasant or he looks at the king on his throne, President Obama, the king on his throne. Okay, never mind. Whatever you think of our president, whatever you think of rulers around the world, you know they get to a certain level, or a celebrity from Hollywood, or a sports star, we tend to elevate them to this place of grandeur, and we think, oh, if I could have that life, or oh, they must, their life must be so blessed. And if you could just step back as Paul does and look through his eyes, he's looking at them exactly the same as he looks at you, or the peasant, or anyone else. He shows no partiality. And Paul is telling us that we are to develop a grammar of the Gospel that says this, folks. Me for you. That's basically what submission is. Back in 521, he says, submit to one another in reverence for Christ. What he's saying is, submission is deferring to one another. Seeing others as better than yourself. Being willing to remove all of the partiality in our lives and quit dehumanizing people and quit objectifying people and rather see them as what they truly are, the imago Dei, the image of God, and be able to say, me for you. The other way around is you for me, which is the opposite in what Paul is trying to address. It's the ultimate form, folks, of self-centeredness when we say, you for me. Me master, you slave. Or on the other hand, slave saying, me slave, you master, I hate you. You see, it goes both ways. And Paul is brilliant here, folks, in what he does. It's not instinctive for us, but it's very necessary that we examine our own hearts and find those places where we are dehumanizing others and objectifying and root it out with the Gospel. So very quick, that's just an introduction. I'll go through the rest quickly. We're going to look at the workplace and we're going to look at three things. First, at the servants. Servants and the need to climb. Servants and the need to climb. Paul addresses that. Secondly, we're going to look at masters. Masters, the need to stay on top. Slaves, the need to climb. Masters, the need to stay on top. And then thirdly, we'll look at, of course, the master who is a servant, which is the answer to all our prayers. The master who is a servant. So servants, this need to climb higher. Uh, verse 5 through 8, he's going to address the servants. Look at what he says in verse 5. He, 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 actually, he actually lays out four things that I think you can identify. The first one is respect. He tells the slaves or the servant, and in our day, in our case, it would be the employer, or the employee, excuse me, if you're working for someone, if you're in any subordinate position, and you realize, folks, that everyone works for somebody, even the Queen of England, even President Obama, even the state and, and, and local authorities that we elect to office, they work for us. We lose sight of that sometimes, but they actually are employees of the people. Even in royalty, they serve 
at the pleasure of the people. When the people get tired of kings, history is bereft with uh, cases where they get tired of a king and they're off with their head. And they dethrone a king. So everyone is subject to someone. And ultimately we're subject to God. And Paul says in verse 5, Obey those who are over you with fear and trembling. He's saying there's to be this deep-seated respect and reverence for someone who has power over you. Now granted, that person may not deserve it and they may be exploitative. They may actually abuse it. But Paul is not addressing that yet. What he's saying is, show respect with fear and trembling. And look what he says. He repeats this, by the way, four times, folks. Very important. He says, obey with fear and trembling as you would Christ. Have respect. Secondly, he says, show integrity. Integrity. Obey with sincerity and singleness of heart. Sincerity and singleness of heart. He's saying, have integrity. In other words, oneness in yourself. Don't be two-faced or two people. Be one, whole. Sincerity and singleness of heart. Again, as you would Christ. Thirdly, verse 6, he says, don't do it with eye service as a man-pleaser, but as a bondservant of Christ. Third time. So he says, show respect, show integrity, and this one, transparency. What your employer should see from you is who you really are. And look, I had employees my whole time that I had my business, and one of the things I used to struggle with was my employees not being honest with me, yes? Those of you that have have people anywhere in your life that are under your authority, you know that one of the things we struggle with as employers is people don't want to be transparent. They don't want to be honest. And there may be reasons for that. But if you're treating them with, re- with respect and you're, and you're treating them fairly, then why not be honest? And what Paul says, it's eye service. It's men-pleasing. In other words, there's this, this uh, uh, a skin, if you will, that's formed on the outside of the person so that you can't see through it. They're manipulating the person who has control over them. And Paul says, don't do that. Don't serve that way with eye service as a man-pleaser. But do it as a bondservant for Christ, as, to Christ. Why? Because you know why? You can't fool Him. He sees through all the skin. He sees through all the layers. He sees us, all of us folks, down to the very bottom. That can be distressing. Oh no, I don't want anybody to know me that well. But God knows you that well. And He's saying, if He knows you that well, He wants you to act with transparency, integrity, and respect towards others. Fourthly, he says, do it wholeheartedly with eagerness and zeal. This is verse 7, the end of 7, and the rest of 8. He says, do the will of God from the heart, rendering service with good will. Now in your English Bible it says with good will, but in Greek the word will is not there, it's just the word good. And it uses a special word for good that means goodwill. And that's why the English translators put in will. But this idea of good, serve, uh, rendering service to them with good 
simply means do it with a whole heart, with eagerness, with zeal. In other words, you're not serving begrudgingly. Oh, they want me to clean that toilet again. Oh my God, I can't believe it. And, you know, and I hate to do that job. And you know, it's begrudging, and you're holding your nose every time the 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 boss tells you to do something. It's always with a little bit of a foot scraping, and oh, I really don't want to do that. And you know, Paul's saying, no, reorient your heart. Do it eagerly and willingly. Why? Because you're serving the Lord and not man. Do you see what he's done here, folks? This is brilliant. And why we should pay attention to what the apostles and the other prophets and writers of the, of the Bible, the Old Testament and New Testament say. They're writing under the inspiration of Holy Spirit and they're telling us something that will go down into the very center of your heart if you'll let it. And he's saying, look, if you're going to serve men, you're naturally going to feel this way about them. It's only natural because we live in a world where conflict is natural. If you're a worker, you always feel like you're getting exploited. And if you're a boss, you always feel like you're not getting anything but maybe 70%. Right? There's always this tension going on. And so Paul says, you know what, remove that whole problem. Take the problem of conflict and feeling like they're taking advantage or that you need to take advantage, you need your rights, they need their rights, and back and forth. saying, take all of that and remove it from the equation. And now, now, you've removed all the problem. It's you and the Lord. Do what you would do as to Christ as to the Lord, as a bondservant of Christ. He's removing from those of us who work for anybody. He's removing from us the fear of exploitation and the need to self-protect. Do you see it? He's taking that away. It's brilliant. And he's saying, let's take the problem and move it over here so that you can stand perfectly, clearly, between you and your Savior and deal with Him and then let the overflow spill out into the workplace, spill out into your relationships with others at work, employee or employer. Do you see it? And imagine in Paul's day where the, where the owner or slave owner or the property owner, the master of the house had unbelievable, there were no work labor unions i mean you didn't have any rights the potter familius had absolute control in the roman empire over everyone that was underneath him including his wife and children he could kill his wife he could kill his children he could kill a slave and there was no law that said he couldn't do it imagine that kind of power and how it would corrupt and Paul is saying to the most vulnerable people around, he's saying, look, you are a servant. Here is how you overcome that powerlessness. You do it by looking to Jesus Christ as you would Christ, as you would Christ, as a bondservant of Christ, not as to men, but as to the Lord. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. Then he addresses the masters. Let's look at this. This is the need to stay on top. So you see, he's talked to the servants and he's saying this need to climb, this conflict of struggling to get your rights and stay ahead is not going to, be ser- is not going to serve you well. 
You need a gospel grammar. Now he's going to turn to the masters and address exactly what their, their fear was. They needed to stay on top. They needed to stay in control. They needed to have authority. And Paul says this. Look at verse 9. It's just br- Again, folks, brilliant. I can't tell you how brilliant this apostle is. He says, do the same to them. First thing he's telling them is, Masters, there must be... Now, this was, this was very unusual in that world, you can imagine. He's telling the masters, there must be reciprocity between you and those that uh, serve you. Now, that would have been pretty controversial and, um, and pretty revolutionary. Paul says this to the masters, do the same to them. In other words, if you want respect from your employees, if you want respect from your slaves, from your servants, show them some respect. If you want respect, show respect. It's, folks, it's down to the ground an application of the golden rule. Yes? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Paul is just taking the golden rule which we kind of put up there in the sky in some abstract thing and we don't really don't think about it practically. Paul brings it down into the practical everyday workaday world and he says here, you want respect, master? You want your employees to respect you, employer? Show them respect. Be respectful. Submit in the context of the word submit. Do the same to them. You see, that way you're not bringing the conflict or the threat of superiority. You're not saying, me boss, you nothing. Me boss, you slave. You're not doing that. You're not saying to your subordinate, you subordinate for me, master. You're saying, me master for you, subordinate. Very revolutionary. And granted, a little dangerous. Takes courage to do that. Who was the guy that first owned the Dallas Cowboys? Was it Bum Phillips or was it Bum Phillips? Did you? I don't know if you all have heard this anecdote about Bum Phillips, but this is back in the I think in the sixty early sixties, and the Cowboys are just forming, and you know their their offices were in one of those tall buildings in uh, in uh, downtown Dallas, and several floors. And do you know that that Bum Phillips or I think it was Bum Phillips he went, would go? Who was it? Okay, there you go. From an authoritative voice. Did you hear that? <laughs> All right, whoever he was, he would go at like four in the morning and turn on all the lights and get all the coffee pots and everything going up and running, and he would wait for his employees to come in. And when they came in, everything was ready for them to put in a good, hard days of work. Why? Because he came early and he turned on the coffee pots and he made sure the lights were on. He made sure the temperature was right. It's like a refrigerator in here today. Do you see what the, the, the genius behind that? A man who was worth millions, who knows? And he comes in and he serves his employees. He wanted them to know, me for you. This place for you. This job for you. This work for you. And they created an amazing organization, as, as you all know. There's reciprocity. Do the same. Second thing he tells the masters is, restrain yourself. He says, forbear threatening. In other words, you have power. A person who has power must restrain themselves. See, if you have no power, you don't have to worry about restraining yourself. You're already under restraint, yes? 
But if you have power, you have to restrain yourself. You know, I heard someone say that Moses, you know, the Bible says Moses was the meekest man who ever lived. And I heard someone say one time, some preacher, that the reason he was the meekest man that ever lived is because he had power under restraint. Moses held the power of life and death in his hands. If Moses had said to uh, Dathan, who uh, who, uh, was one of the rebels, you now are a French fry, he would have turned into a French fry. But Moses was always backing off of that power and deferring it to the Lord. And saying things like, don't kill them, kill me. Wow. Now, you're seeing why Paul would say, restraint, if you have power, if you have authority, if you have control over people, no matter where it is, whether they're uh, your employees and at your work, or perhaps you're a supervisor, maybe you're military and you happen to be an officer and you've got people under whatever the case is, remember that you are to control that power. It is to stay in control so that you don't threaten Threatening is a form of violence. It's a form of, of, of weaponry. It's a power over someone. And he's saying, don't do that. John Stott, in his commentary, says this, relationships based on threats. Listen, some, some of us need to hear this. Relationships based on threats. It could be any kind of relationship, husband, wife, children, whatever it is. If you find yourself threatening your children or threatening your spouse, if you do this and one more time, I'm going to divorce you. If you do that one more time, I'm going to take away your iPad. If you do that one more there's threatening. Stott says relationships based on threats is not a human relationship how do you like that brilliant a relationship based on threats is not a human relationship it's something else and paul is saying you just can't have we can't have that the third thing and the final thing he says to masters is face the reality the reciprocity the restraint face the reality and the reality is this masters Jesus is master of both you, master, and them. There's no partiality. We have to face the reality, whether we're a slave or a master, whether we're an employee or an employee, whether we have power and authority or not, we must face the reality, folks, that Jesus Christ is Lord of heaven and earth and you and me. He's Lord of it all. And we all serve at His good pleasure Do you see that? People who have power, people that have money, people that have authority, often, folks, very often, and I know I was that person, and sometimes still am, people that have power, have money, have authority, we live in delusion. We think nothing can touch us. And then what happens? 2008. Or what happens? 1929. Or what happens? Something else. You see, there's always a bigger dog than the one you have. And that's what he's talking about here. 
Don't live in delusion, masters. Face the reality that you too have a master. And therefore, you are to treat your uh, employees, your slaves, your those that are under your control, you must treat them with restraint and with respect, reciprocity. Do you see it? So important. Finally, how do you do this? You know, it would be, it'd be great for me just to tell you, okay, here, do, do these things and uh, go and be blessed. But, but you know that's not how it works because we have our own self to deal with. We have our own proclivities, our own selfishness. And this is exactly, folks, what Paul is driving at with husbands and wives and children and parents and now employees and employers. He's saying we all have this this internal self-orientation, selfishness. And we we do almost anything within our power, listen, to self-protect. Because we don't want to be hurt. We don't want to get wounded. We don't want to get abused. We don't want to have uh, uh, advantage taken of us. That's normal and natural to self-protect. And so Paul, in the the brilliance of of his writing, he says this, he is both master and he is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. He, he takes all of what he's saying and he points back over and again in just those four verses back to Jesus over and over again. Why? Why is he doing that? He's wanting you and me to see that when we take Jesus Christ into our life, if you claim to be a Christian, if you're here today and say, I'm a Christian, if you claim that, then look in your heart because residing somewhere in each of our hearts must be the Master who is a servant. Both. He has to exist there in your life. And when you see Jesus Christ in your heart, Master and servant, who He is and what He has done, you see that He defeats the need to climb. And He defeats the need to stay on top. How does He defeat the need to stay on top? He came down. And how does He defeat the need to climb? He says this, Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor. Jesus was poor. And He was rich beyond your wildest imaginations. And He embraced the two parts. Poverty and being under, to, 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 to being under control of other people. He embraced that and He pulls it down close. And He takes His exalted position as the Son of God. The inheritance of all creation is His. And He draws it down and He builds it down into the inside of Himself. And then what does He do with it for you and for me? What does He do with that? He goes straight to the cross. He goes straight to the place of absolute powerlessness. Less than a slave. He let Himself be mastered 
by the worst and most cruel masters of all, the Romans and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious and the secular. He puts Himself at their mercy. Why? So that you and I could take that master servant down into our heart and never live a day in fear that anybody could possibly take it. Well, you don't know they're taking advantage. No, they're not. They can't possibly take advantage of you because they already took advantage of him. And if you take that down into your soul and live that with all your heart, nothing can assail you. And your work, the workplace, the place where God has called us to work, folks, not lay on the beach and do nothing. Work is important. Work has dignity. And He's called us to work and build and be creative. And so He wants us to find great satisfaction in our work and not be in conflict all the time. Jesus said the Son of Man did not come to be served. He came to serve. If Jesus could come down and go to the cross and in so doing say to every one of us, me for you, then He's saying in that is the power for you to say to everyone and everything around you, whether they're your boss or whether they're your employee, me for you. Me for you. Let's pray. Father, wow, it's so hard to do this. We so much want to self-protect. And some of us have been wounded and hurt by others in our work and in our homes and in our marriages. And this, this overwhelming desire to protect ourselves, to avoid the pain, is exactly the thing that keeps us from finding Your healing power. And I pray, Holy Father, please, That as we think deeply about these relationships, husbands and wives and children and parents and employers and employees, that in all of these realms of our life, which makes up all that we are, that You would help us, Father, to find peace in Jesus Christ, the Lord and the Master of all, and yet the servant of all. I pray that You'll do it, Father. For His sake and for His great name, the fame and glory of Your Son, Jesus. Do that for us, please. In His name, Amen.